Well, hey there, everyone. I'm Chris. I'm one of the pastors at Cornerstone Church Wirral in Merseyside, and I'm joined by Josh Walsh, the lead pastor of Cornerstone Wirral. And today we're going to chat about how we let fear take over in our lives. Now, we hope that the members of the church and really anyone else who's listening finds this podcast useful as they grow in their faith in Christ and as they step out into all that God has called them to do. This podcast is just an extension of the ministry that we already do here at Cornerstone Wirral in order to encourage you and equip you as members of the church while you're on mission for Jesus in the world around you. So you're invited into the conversation with Josh and I as we discuss relevant and current topics to equip the church as well as share stories that will encourage you as you step into all that God has before you. All right, Josh, as always, it is good to sit and chat, but this is a a rare week uh, where we haven't been able to chat as much. Uh, How are you doing, mate? I'm doing really well. I'm... For the viewers who can't see in the our office, I'm shocked that I've just noticed something. You're not wearing any shoes, Chris. I'm not wearing any shoes. It's kind of freaking me out. Yeah, yeah. I didn't do it last time either. Yeah, but I didn't spot it. Yeah, it's so as I don't kick my desk too hard. Why would you be kicking your S- desk? Simple. I like I like to move, but oh, I have okay. to be st- silent because my, my chair makes a noise. And I don't want all of our listeners to, to hear my chair creaking around. Okay. And so I'm trying to be as silent as possible. I'll try and keep my eyes. Yeah. Keep your eyes up head level. Yes. <laughs> That'll be good. How are you, Chris? I'm well, I'm well. We've been running our first ever holiday club uh, at Coniston World. It's been an absolute blast. Um, I'm absolutely shattered from it. I just forgot how intense the actions are to some of the songs that uh, kids sing these days. And I've also realized how unfit I am um, as I've been trying to, to jump along with them. And um, the guys who have been helping each day are absolutely shattered by the looks of it. Uh, by the end of each session, they're, they're ready to collapse. But it has been wonderful seeing um, just all the kids that have been coming along, uh, engage with who Jesus is, wanting to know more, going home and singing songs with their parents, uh, those who, who don't necessarily know Jesus themselves. Um, and uh, wanting to come back the next day. Uh, so that's been really, really, really exciting. And I know that this coming week, you're actually heading off as well. So I've had a busy front end of the week um, and you're having a busy tail end of the week and you're jetting off to Ireland uh, to the Emerald Isle uh, as part of your role with Acts 29. Do you want to share with us a little bit about what you're going to be doing there? Yeah. So for, for those of you perhaps maybe catching up with this, we uh, last year took some of the members that Acts 29 Great Britain Ireland uh, were going through a bit of a, a reboot and uh, we had been invited as uh, some of the staff of the Cornerstone Collective to be part of that process. And at the conclusion of that process, they approached us if we would continue on in our roles. So uh, so since September, I've formally been uh, working for them in some capacity, which is particularly about overseeing the assessment process. So I'm the assessment coordinator for Great Britain and Ireland, which also extends into helping some of the guys in Europe uh, do that. So my role is when a church or a church planter applies to join the Acts 29 network, they get in touch with me and I kick them off the assessment process and walk with them all the way through their application process, all the way through to their assessment interview and conference and, uh, and then bring them God willing into a candidate phase of Acts 29. So we have two different ways that it happens. So church planters who are about to plant a church will apply their trajectory leads them to an assessment conference uh, where there may be four to six couples being assessed over the course of three days. But if you're an existing church who wants to be part of Acts 29 because you want to be a church planting church, 
you go through the same assessment, similar assessment process, but that trajectory ends in an on-site visit. Uh, so that is why I've been away a couple of times over the last few months, because I've gone and conducted some on-site visits with a team to assess the church, encourage them to, to really give them some warm, encouraging feedback about how they're doing as a church, to speak into their context and to walk with them as they seek to be a church planning church in their own context. And you've been doing this role for, well, since September, really, haven't you? How have you found that over the past few months? What's been some of the highlights for you? Yeah, so it's a real privilege and honor, really, that I guess since probably 2015, 16, I've been part of assessing church planters, uh, but maybe not with the the ultimate responsibility of actually overseeing it. So I've always had a kind of kind of knowing what's going on and being a privilege to be part of it. Now actually being part of steering it across such a wide area is a real joy responsibility. So it's been wonderful to meet so many new people and to get to know people in more depth and to go visit other churches. Uh, so it's been a highlight going to other churches. It's really, it does two things for me. It really encourages me when I see healthy churches growing and seeking to honor Christ in their own context, but it also then uh, stirs the affections of my heart for Cornerstone World because I miss being away. Uh, and also, I think going away also helps me appreciate what the Lord is doing here in so many ways, uh, which stops me from taking it for granted or just assuming things here. So I've, I've really been blessed by that. And to just being able to walk with people on their journey of church planting is, is just such a privilege and joy to, to do that. That's amazing. At the time that this episode drops, you'll have already returned um, from that assessment weekend. Um, how can we be praying for you as a church? Um, through this season, through this role that you're doing, what, what kind of things can we be praying for and maybe in coming alongside and asking questions of what, what can we do? Yeah. So I think uh, interest, well, maybe not surprisingly, it does feel a bit like a job on top of the job I was already doing. So at times um, it's more seasonal than weekly. So there are seasonal moments where it feels, oh, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of detail to do. Um, a lot of things to coordinate. So for example, an example of that is in March, I'm going to be running assessor training for um, to train more people to assess people. So it doesn't just land on my shoulders or a couple of people's shoulders. So I'm training up more people who can go and do those assessments so I don't have to do them all. Um, that's happening in March. So good friend, Jeff Meadows is coming over from the States, from Houston to uh, help me with that because he's the global assessment coordinator for Acts 29 and he's bringing some friends with him. We'll see them on Sunday, the 19th of March at our own Sunday gathering. He's going to preach for us. Amazing. So excited for that. Um, I'd be great for the whole church to see him and to hear from him and pray for him uh, and the guys. So that's a seasonal thing. That's going to be quite busy. And then it'll go quiet for a little bit. And then in May, I'm going to be running an assessment conference. I'm praying that we'll actually be able to host it in Cornerstone World. It'll be during the week. Uh, I may be coming to some people listening for some help uh, <laughs> to, to help me that week. And it's just a way in which we as a church get to actually physically uh, engage and support the work. Um, so we'll have probably three guys from the UK and two to three from Central Europe coming for that assessment conference. That's amazing. Um, so, so again, that'll be a busy season and then I'll go pretty quiet. Um, I may need to go to Slovakia in June to do an on-site assessment and then it'll be pretty quiet through to September. So it's a little bit seasonal. So seasonal moments that feel busy, but I think we've been working hard up behind the scenes to ensure that my calendar, preaching schedule, the church calendar kind of complements that yeah. rather than doing lots of things. Also, it doesn't feel overwhelming. It doesn't feel burdening. It feels life-giving 
as I do it. And I hope the benefits felt across the church as well. As, as someone who's gone through that assessment uh, conference and, and all of the pre-assessment um, conference kind of criteria, it, it is something that's really amazing for candidates to go through, really helpful, really clarifying for candidates, whether it's a church or whether it's an individual or a couple or whatever it might be. Uh, and it, it's it's really exciting to hear you continue your role within that, to see you kind of flourish in that. Um, tell me this, we desire to see churches planted across the UK, Ireland, beyond, so that the glory of the Lord might go out, uh, such as the waters cover the sea. How, in, how is the, the kind of the, the rhythm, the flow of church planting and church planters um, currently in this place, in the UK, for example? Yeah, so I think speaking, getting the opportunity to speak with national leaders um, in this role now, that actually we would all kind of share a similar story that it feels like the pipeline of church planters has dried up slightly, which is which is discouraging in some ways, um, but also, we, so therefore we need to think and pray through what why that is and what's happened to that. I think there's a number of reasons why that is. I think it's certainly not a glamorous task to plant the church. It's hard work. Um, it's, it's often, I think the culture we swim in where leaders are targets and some people just don't want to step into the lead role because there's so much stuff that comes with that. That's can be hard and difficult. Uh, I think the resources aren't there to really encourage that, but I'm also a believer of you shouldn't wait till the resources are there to, to plant the church. If the Lord calls you to, he will provide. So I think on a national scale, the picture of people coming through isn't great. So we're in very much of a increasing awareness, trying to recruit people, identify people who might get lost. If they're not identified as a church planter, they might just get lost in other roles and maybe not get to utilize the gifts that the Lord has given them. So we're very much in that phase. So we would expect in the next 18 months to see that pipeline kind of speed up again and more people come to the fore. So we're very much a prayerful stage at the minute planning, increasing awareness stage of that. But that's something that as a church we should really be praying for because it's not, a. I don't, I don't think it's just church planters, pipeline is dried up. I think it's true of people wanting to be elders, true of people wanting to be pastors. And that's a greater worry for the church longer term if that trajectory continues. Yeah. There's lots to pray for uh, in the midst of, of, of all that you're doing there. And, and even as we bring that closer to home and think about kind of what we're preferably planning into uh, over this next season, as we long to see people come to Christ, as we long to see uh, communities transformed by the gospel, we too need to see church planters, elders, um, ministry leaders, uh, those who can step up uh, and into the, the task that's set before them. Over these past few weeks, as we've been going through uh, chapters four, five, and six of, of Nehemiah, We've seen this recurring theme of, of trust and dependence in God that stems from a fear of God in the midst of opposition and in the midst of oppression as well, because opposition and oppression have had the potential of disrupting, the, in the case of Nehemiah, the building of the walls of Jerusalem. And in much of what you were sharing, there was a case of opposition and oppression seeming to cause a, a disruption to the building of the kingdom through church planters stepping forward and into the, the task set before them or church leaders or, or every facet of, of stepping into those, those roles. But at Cornerstone, we're not building a wall 
we're we're not taking on a building project um at cornerstone as far as i'm aware and uh, that may come further down the line who knows uh, but that's not something that we're currently at but what lessons can we learn from this narrative of of wall building that we find in nehemiah it's important to understand that the the Bible is one whole story where God is working out his purposes that he planned before the foundation of the world that is then realized through the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and ultimately accomplishes uh, through his death and resurrection and will be culminated when he comes for us again. So that means everything pre-Christ, pre the cross is about God moving his story and his plan of redemption through the people of Israel, through the people of God, so that the Messiah would come. So that promise in Genesis 3, where God promises the offspring of Eve, the seed of Eve would one day come and crush the serpent's head. Everything in the Old Testament is being worked out through that one promise. So when we get to the point of Nehemiah, we have to understand that what God's doing through the building up the walls isn't just restoring a city. He's about preparing the way of the Messiah. And part of preparing the way for the Messiah is there needs to be a city. And so God is actually using this to ultimately bring about the fulfillment of his promise of the Messiah who would come. So he's protecting his people so that they're not lost in exile. He's brought them back to one location through the free waves, and he's gotten to be about a task that's actually going to ultimately find his fulfillment in the coming of the Messiah. So he, so the people of God are very much about building up the kingdom of God, working out the promises of God in that particular context and time. That's what the Lord required to, be, to happen. And how does the fear of the Lord fit into that? So we've seen that theme throughout, particularly with Nehemiah himself, uh, fearing the Lord. And then as we come to the, to the end of chapter six and even into chapter seven, we see that Nehemiah appoints leaders who fear the Lord. What is fearing the Lord got to do with, with all of this? Well, so we talked a lot about that in, in those chapters four to six, you see that phrase given a lot. If we kind of go back a little bit through the Old Testament, we see that God's people fl always flourish when they walk in the fear of the Lord and they don't flourish when they don't walk in the fear of the Lord. So throughout the Old Testament, particularly post, um, was particularly the, the kind of early periods from David onwards, God raises up prophets who would go to the people and would remind them of the word of God, would remind them of who God is, remind them of who they are as the people of God and what they should be about. So essentially those prophets, the prophet's role is to draw the people back to the fear of the Lord. And so those prophets themselves are walking in the fear of the Lord as they obey the commands to go and call the people back to it. And so when you read through the leaders appointed through the Old Testament, you'll often find that repeated phrase, they're walking in the fear of the Lord. And I think I said in the chapter five sermon that the fear of the Lord isn't this cowering in fear uh, behind the sofa, afraid of somebody. The fear of the Lord is living in awe of, in awareness of, in knowledge of, in light of who God is. So we live in light of who God is and that therefore shapes how we do. So somebody who's living in light of the fear of the Lord, as in somebody who lives in awe of, in awareness of, in knowledge of, in light of, is somebody who will conduct their lives in such a way that it can only make sense because they're living for another person. And in this case, God himself. I think of Moses, um, whenever I think of fear of the Lord, particularly at the burning bush, he, he stands and he witnesses the, the Lord in a, in a bush that is not consumed by fire. And he, he realizes that it is holy ground in which he stands. I think of Isaiah 
uh, as he's kind of got that vision of the throne of God. And he says, woe to me for I am lost. Um, and there's a real sense of fear at, at, at an understanding of the disparity between his sin and God's holiness. And then you just walk through the Psalms, you walk through the Proverbs, that kind of wisdom literature, and you're seeing loads of encouragements to fear the Lord time and time again. Uh, it's the beginning of wisdom. It, it leads to life. And um, those who are foolish do not have fear of the Lord. And as I've been reflecting over the recent years, particularly thinking of what fear of the Lord is, um, just realizing that it's, it, it might start with terror. It might start with fear and dread and uh, because you realize that disparity between you and God, the holiness, the gap is huge. It's insurmountable. Uh, and that is a right place for it to start. But it gradually, as you said, moves towards awe and wonder and joy and delight and, and worship and treasuring God for who he is and what he's like. And so fear of the Lord might look different for different people at the stage at which they are, but all of it amounts to how we view God in light of who he is and who we are in light of who he is as well and how that shapes everything. Yeah. So, so fear of the Lord will always lead to change, but the wrong, wrong fear of the Lord doesn't work itself out through the lens of Christ and the gospel. So fear of the Lord might begin, as you say, with, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips, how sinful I am. I don't deserve to come into the presence of the Lord, but we know that we can come in the presence of the Lord, not through our own works, but through the work of Christ. So that's what becomes, that's where all comes from. So when, I think I grew up in a context where I had a fear of the Lord, but it was a wrong, a wrong view of God. It never was worked out through the lens of the cross and the gospel. So therefore I didn't end up in awe and wonder and worship. And that's, that's when the gospel transformed my heart. That changed how I viewed God and how I viewed me in light of that, which then leads to a radical change and transformation of our lives manifested in our everyday lives. Proverbs 19, 23 says that the fear of the Lord leads to life and whoever has it rests satisfied. Whoever has fear of the Lord rests satisfied. That was not you and I in our childhood as we were brought up to, to fear the, the terror kind of aspect of fear of the Lord. But we can rest assured because of Christ and his finished work and an honor and praise and worship him in light of that. But yet our souls are often not restful. They're often not satisfied. And often it's because we don't fear the Lord. We fear something else. Um, the Bible says that we can't be mastered by two different things. We can't fear and honor and uphold everything that there is about the Lord with all of our soul, heart and minds, as well as fear other things. And we're often distracted or uh, divided in our hearts. How does fearing other things impact us in the way that we fulfill what God has called us to do? Yeah. So I think there's three fears. So I think there's a, there's a harmful fear, a healthy fear and a holy fear in our lives. And we need to function in light of, in light of the right one. So 2 Timothy 1, Paul says to Timothy, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind or a self-control, depending on what version you read. And so so therefore there is a harmful fear. So harmful fear is something that hinders you from living a life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So that's what you're saying. There, there can be, there, we can live in light of fears in our lives that lead us to a harm, that hinder us in serving and worshiping God and serving others. We'll come back to that. Healthy fear is where we teach our children, <laughs> don't run across the road without looking. There are healthy fears that constrain us because we understand the consequences of it. Hmm. And then there is holy fear, which is what we've talked about initially, the fear of yeah. the Lord. We live in awe of, in light of who God is and his holiness and who he is. And in the gospel, who he has made us to be adopted into his family, part of his kingdom, therefore becomes the, the way in which we live in light of who we are in Christ. It creates a holy life because he is holy. So, Back to the first one, I think was the one you were asking was that was the harmful fear. So for example, many of us will struggle with a fear of man. Let's go back a little bit. Think about Nehemiah chapter five. Why, why is Nehemiah able to use his resources to serve and bless others and to advance the kingdom rather than in contrast to the nobles, the noblemen and the, and the rulers who use their resources to gain for themselves? Well, for us, what that means is when we live in light of the fear of man, when we fear man, we don't move toward them to love them and serve them as Christ has loved and served us. Rather, we appease them so that they give us something we so desperately want. So the fear of man complex is you're either after love, you're either after affirmation, you're either after acceptance, uh, you're, you're after um, uh, compliments, you're after, you're, you believe they have something inside of them that you so desperately need to be content and a satisfied heart. Whereas when you live in out of the fear of the Lord, you don't view people as something I need to get out of them. Rather, you view it as filled with the spirit of love, power, self-control. You move to others to love and serve them. So that's the difference. So when you live in light of the fear of man, you don't serve and love people. You abuse people and use them for your own gain. When you live in light of the fear of the Lord, you move toward others to love and serve them for their own benefit, not yours. That's incredibly liberating. It means you can walk into a room and not have a complex of, hey, everybody, here I am, look at me. And rather you can w walk into a room and go, there you are, how can I help you? Even thinking about Nehemiah 6, um, where Nehemiah is being personally kind of sought after uh, to, to kill, to assassinate, uh, to take out the leader. And he could have easily sought to preserve his life, run away in fear or acquiesced in fear and uh, trying to prevent his life from being taken away from him. He could have gone for what people were trying to, to do to influence society. So tail end of, of chapter six, we see Tobiah and his, his influence growing within the people of Judah. And, and Nehemiah is almost the undercurrent of the, the, the theme is that they're holding him up as someone that should be taken on into Nehemiah's team of leading the people. Um, and Nehemiah could have easily done that. We see that in, in, in the world around us, don't we? We see where influence is gained through the appointing of one person because the people want that to happen. And often the, the person who's making that decision is swayed by the people rather than their own convictions. And they, they step away from their own convictions and, and, and lean on instead the influence of others. And, and in essence, that is, that is fear of, of man, isn't it? That's, that's fear of what other people think. And we're increasing the influence that they have over us. 
And so it shapes what we do and how we act and what we say and what we think. Yeah, it's people, it's possessions. So if we have a fear of instability or a fear of not being secure in life or comfortable in life, we will then therefore look to possessions and things to bring us security comfort, Mm. stability in our lives. So therefore every decision that we make, life will be constrained and enslaved to finding comfort, protection and security in material possessions, which is why we find such a clash when it comes to Nehemiah at the end of chapter five, who who uses his resources to give away for the good of others. How how does Nehemiah move from a closed handed fist with his possessions to an open-handed one. Well, because he lived in the fear of the Lord. He didn't look to his possessions to provide security, comfort, or protection. Rather, he viewed his possessions as a way of serving others. Why? Because he found his ultimate security, protection, and comfort in the Lord. So if you live in light of the fear of the Lord, you are finding your ultimate identity, security, protection, provision, comfort, rest, love, So therefore you become open-handed with what you have, you give it away for the benefit of others and for the extension of the kingdom. And and really what it comes down to is that the fear of the Lord is at the center of it. This is simply living a gospel-centered life. A gospel-centered life is is simply living in light of who God is and who we are in light of that. But we perhaps struggle to drill down deep enough into our hearts to see what's really at play. We're too often dealing with the behavioral change. We're too often dealing with the manifesting sin and not going deep enough. You know, dear God, I'm sorry for this wrong action. I'm sorry I got angry. The better question is, well, why did you get angry? I got angry because I felt like this one thing that I really need was being taken away from me. Well, why do you really need that? because that gives me satisfaction or that gives me uh, safety, that gives me security. But why, do you, why does that give you safety and security? What happens if, that, if you lose that thing? Well, I don't know who I'll be. Well, who are you already in Christ? Oh, in Christ, I'm already secure. In Christ, I've already received abundance and blessing and provision and protection. In Christ, he has promised he'll never leave me or forsake me. In Christ, he has always promised to provide. Like he provides for the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. So he too will provide for me my daily bread. Ah, oh. so so we we often don't live in light of the fear of the Lord because we don't do the, the deeper work of what's really going on in our hearts when there's manifesting sin. And I also think that we don't often realize that our, I think I tried to get to this in the MF5, we, do, we actually don't realize that our sin is really, is an injustice against other people, but ultimately at its root is a sin, it's an affront to God first and foremost. And therefore that's why we struggle in repentance. We struggle to repent because we don't realize that when I didn't treat that person the way that I should have, or I treated that person to give me out of them what I think I need, affirmation, acceptance, love, that I wasn't just sinning against them at a horizontal level. I was sinning against God at a vertical level because I'm ultimately saying, God, your love isn't enough for me. I need it from that person. God, your provision isn't good enough for me. I need it from this job. God, your security is not good enough for me. I need it from this relationship. God, your uh, provision isn't enough. I need it from this home. Uh, and so, so for whenever we make that decision, I just don't think we've gone deep enough to realize that that's a sin and an affront against God. And it's the fear of the Lord. It's living in awe of and light of who he really is, is the thing that opens our hands 
to generously give away. So you can tell how deep the gospel is penetrating someone's heart often. I'm not going to say 100%, often by how they, how they live, by what they give away, how they steward what they have. Uh, that's why I got to the point of like, who sat around your dinner table? Who's in your life? Who who you're extending an invitation to? Who you're blessing? Who you're giving away? Who, and, and, and you learn a lot by who, who you're not doing it with. And so all of these things are signs and signals, traffic lights, uh, like on your dashboard of your car, signaling something, but we need to go deeper in our hearts and go, well, why, why did I make that decision? Why did I think that? Why did I do that? What's really going on underneath? And I can promise you folks that the gospel is good enough and big enough to liberate you from even the most enslaving sin in your heart. I know from experience, particularly with that analogy of the, 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 there's warning lights in the dashboard of your car or the, or those things that are, are triggering warnings in advance Often we fail to notice them or we notice them, but ignore them and don't do anything about it. And often that leads to a a spiral where things get worse before they get better. Um, And we're in denial that we actually need to do something um, proactive about it. Um, Often whenever I think of fear of man, I'm thinking about how much I can do to make people like me or give me or elevate me or um, think I'm great, ultimately seek, seeking my own glory. Uh, but sometimes I, I, I've also seen where in my own life, I've grown passive or detached uh, from people in the sense of I'm, I'm, I'm nervous about them. Um, and so I, I don't want to step in, into their life because they might not like me. Uh, and that, that belittles me, that, that makes me shrink. Ultimately, I'm finding myself, how, how can I make myself bigger in people's minds and, and lives and hearts? That, that's what I'm doing whenever I'm fearing man rather than living in light of fear of the Lord. Uh, and as you said, uh, and I, I find this really helpful. There was a book that I read about 10 years ago. Um, it's by Ed Welch. Um, when, when people are big and God is small. And even the title was really helpful because it totally explains what you just said about um, our sin is actually against God. Because what we're doing whenever we're elevating people in our mind's eye is shrinking God uh, into something small and, and meaningless and worthless in our, in our own hearts. And so our sin is really against God. So how do we, how do we grow in the fear of the Lord? How do we shrink down our fear of man uh, on whatever else it might be that we're fearing? And how do we grow in the fear of the Lord? Well, I think the only way you can do that is the only way that this big fear in your life becomes small and this fear of the Lord becomes big again is that you have to proportion your time to reflect that. So if we spend all week in the world and we are just saturating our lives with media and relationships and people, uh, who don't walk in the ways of the Lord, who aren't pointing us to Christ, then we're going to become more like the world. It's quite simple. We're going to think like them. We're going to act like them. We're going to do like them. We're going to become like them. But if you spend time with the Lord, so firstly, I think you got to be in, in the Bible. you got to see how big this God is. Come see how big this God is. There is no one bigger than him. He is the God who created all things and through him, all things were created by him and for him. So one, he is big. <laughs> than ever, everyone else. We have to get to know him, spend time with him, read about him, learn about him, grow in him. And then you got to commune with him. You know, as you commune with the Lord, you begin to see that this, this holy, awesome God actually drew near to us in humility 
walked alongside us, actually went to the cross. Something so big became so small and humble. But when he rose again and ascended, he ascends as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He is the victorious King. We find our identity in him, victorious. We have all things. He has seated us in heavenly places. All things are bestowed to us. So there's there's a work of going knowing who God is. And there's a work of knowing who we are in light of his victory. You've got to commune with him, grow in prayer and dependence and begin to see who he really is in light of the contrast of the world. And then understand why you're in the world. Understand that you're in the world, not to find or seek an identity, but because you have one and it is a missional identity. One of the greatest, uh, greatest reasons why we don't evangelize is because of this fear. We fear man more than we fear God. Well, this holy God has commanded us to go make disciples of all nations. Well, every time we don't do that, we are functioning in the fear of man. So we all asked each other in church, why don't we make disciples? Why don't we evangelize? We said, well, I was fearful of what they thought of me. There you go. That's fear of man rather than fear of God. Was it like to live in the fear of God that says, this is who I am. This is who you are because of me. And this is what I call you to do. Go make disciples. Then we move outwards in our lives. Nehemiah 6 uh, verses 15 to 16, almost like the center point of, of Nehemiah 6, it's the, of, of, of really where we're up to in the series is the wall was finished. The task was complete. The work was done. And what is the response? The glory of the Lord shines out to the nations. And how do the nations respond? The nations all around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteems, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. The work was done because of the fear of the Lord and for the glory of his name. The people got that. The people grew in that. The people were gathered together. They were galvanized around the word of the Lord. Uh, they, they listened and they responded uh, in light of who he was rather than what their enemies around them were doing. And they completed the task. And so too do we gather together. We sit under the word of God so that we might know him, that we might be in awe of him and have our eyes fixed upon him rather than the other things that seek to distract us and ultimately enabling us and equipping us to complete the work that has been set before us, just as you said. It's really exciting to see what God is doing through us, through his people, the people who fear him. And so it is our prayer that actually we don't see people being distracted and um, kind of divided in their their heart, uh, fearing man and, and seeking to try to fear God on a, on a Sunday maybe, but actually wanting to be wholeheartedly fearing the Lord in every aspect of, they, of their lives, whether that's in the workplace. So Colossians um, 3, 22 tells us to fear the Lord in, in the midst of our workplace. Um, what does it look like to fear the Lord in our everyday context? And that's a question for you guys. What does it look like for you to be fearing the Lord? When do you find that that's hard? When do you find that difficult? And actually you begin to fear other people um, and instead do things f for their influence, for, for your glory, for their glory. When, when do you fall at this? When do you find this hard? Share your thoughts with us. We'd love to be able to pray with you. We'd love to be able to help you. But also share those times whenever you've actually grown and sought to fear the Lord in those moments and stepped into those hard and difficult moments in order to display his glory, to complete the task for him 
rather than for yourself or for anyone else. Now, we would love to hear some of those stories and be able to share some of those stories as well. Why don't you send them in to us by email uh, using chris at cornerstonechurchworld.org. And we would love to read them and pray through them and respond to them as well. Josh, we've got a little bit of time left. Is there anything that you'd like to say that we haven't chatted about already? Let's just make the, let's just make the connection to wrap it all up. God, God free the people at the time in Nehemiah was about building the wall to bring about the culmination of his promise given to Eve, to Abraham, to bring about the Messiah. We now go to work, not building a physical wall, but building the church that Jesus is building and the gates of hell will not prevail. He is building his people in to be that, that spiritual temple stone by stone to be that radiant display, that city on a hill. We are about the building up of the kingdom of God through the building up of the people of God discipling one another in community on mission together, making disciples so that more people can come into contact. So every man and woman and child of Wirral can come to know Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the building work that we are about now. And to be part of that work, we're going to have to do some heart work, which is figuring out what hinders us. What is that harmful fear that hinders us from actually giving our lives to that work? And how can we live in light of a holy fear of the Lord? so that he is glorified, the people edified, and that the lost are reached. Yeah, let us rise up. Let us build. Well, that's just one more thing for this week. We hope that you find it useful. It's been so encouraging to read those responses to the recent episodes. Do keep sharing them with us. And if you've enjoyed this episode, go on and subscribe on whatever app you're using uh, to listen to podcasts and share it. Talk about it with your friends and others who might find it useful. Uh, God bless, and we'll catch you soon for just one more thing.